You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Tonight we turn to Galatians 6 uh, for what we plan to have as our next to last study in the book of Galatians. The Apostle Paul tonight will uh, recap some of the main things in the book in short and direct language as he says, I write this in my own hand. I write this so you know this is me. So this is his uh, seal of authentication. Uh, This is the verification and certification. This is really from the Apostle, and he gives them these closing words in his own handwriting. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but the desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. We'll finish out this handwritten section, but uh, that above is the part we'll study tonight. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So here we have this section that uh, will close the book which we are calling the uh, handwritten recap, uh, the part that Paul says, I write this in my own hand. Uh, A number of books from the Apostle Paul will make mention of uh, some kind of uh, secretary or or stenographer who did the actual uh, writing for him. In uh, Romans 16, verse 22, at the close of that great book, there's a man by the name of Tertius, the one who did the handwriting, who said, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, we have one similar to this. This greeting, Paul says, is in my own hand, and he signs his name Paul. Uh, we have Colossians 4, 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and again adds a little bit of admonition. Remember my imprisonment, grace be with you. And also in 2 Thessalonians 3, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. And so he had a distinct way, as he says. He has a way of writing that was clearly his. Uh, Those other fellows, the probably accomplished or maybe even professional writers, they would have had probably a beautiful and clearly legible and professional hand. Uh, The Apostle Paul. Uh, though he was very well educated and obviously literate and could read and write, 
uh, he writes in an identifiable way, he says. And in this letter, he makes mention that it's quite large. Think about like the uh, copies we've seen, the Declaration of Independence. It's a little hard to read now because it's in a tight uh, cursive script. And some people can't read cursive at all. But also they form some letters differently. Even if you're good in cursive, the Declaration of Independence is not the easiest thing to write. But obviously the body of it was written in a very, very professional hand. But then to make sure, and he said he did it so the king could read it without his glasses, John Hancock wrote his signature really big. And so Paul does something like that here. He writes in his own handwriting, and he says that he wrote, and acknowledges himself, he wrote really big. And so uh, some have thought uh, that, uh, you know, since Paul had, and he'll mention it to the Corinthians, that Paul had a thorn in the flesh, something that was terribly irksome to him, something that um, possibly even was unattractive to others, that some people have speculated, based on this passage, that that thorn in the flesh may have been an affliction of the eyes that Paul uh, could not see well, uh, or that uh, he had some issue with his eyes that, uh, well, caused him to have to write large so that he could see it clearly, but also in something that, uh, you know, was unattractive when people saw him. It's like, that guy doesn't quite look right. And we've all seen maybe people who are blind or or, um, visually impaired to some degree, and something is off about their eyes, and people just notice it, and you see their reaction and so it's possible that Paul had something like that. Uh, imagine if you did all that work that Paul did, and you did it on very limited eyesight. It makes it would make it all the more impressive. But whatever it was, be that the thorn in his flesh or not, he writes here very largely, and he writes in a way, he says, this is my certification. This is how you know this. This is really me. Then, and this is the part we'll study tonight, and it's kind of unique. And so I think we should spend uh, some time with it. Paul is going to tell us about the opponents. He's going to tell us what they're doing, what they're really doing, what is in their heart, and what there is, what is their motivation for doing it. Uh, sometimes, because of our limitations, we have to ask ourselves, and we'll, we'll hear people say, and we may say ourselves, what was he thinking? Why would somebody do that? And we try to assign a motive that makes some logical sense to us for the destructive or illogical appearing action that we saw. But the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, has the real ability to tell us what folks are doing. He says in verse 12, they, these people desire to make a good showing in the flesh. And he said in verse 13, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So in both verses 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul tells us what his opponents in this religious discussion, these opponents in the church taking the brethren back to the law, he tells us directly what it is that these people desire. He tells us the motivations of their heart. Now, one thing we have to be careful of in dealing with other people, is assigning motive to them. Because do we know what they're thinking? Do we know what they want? Well, if they tell us, we know. But if they don't tell us, we don't know. Because, as Paul said to the Corinthians, 
For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of man which is in him? And so there might be any number of times when you say, Jay, what were you thinking? And depending on what I did and how embarrassed I am about it, I may or may not answer. (laughs) And if I don't answer, you don't really know what I was thinking. And now sometimes it you know, the motivations might seem pretty obvious. It's not that hard to guess. There are sometimes people do things that just aren't that complicated. Uh, and they go, how did you know? Well, you, you know, you weren't that subtle about it. We can tell. But we do have to exercise some care because the true thoughts of man, only a man knows, except also God. And so, as it says in Psalm 44, Who would think God would not find this out? It says, for he knows the secrets of the heart. Or Acts 15, 8. God who knows the hearts gives this testimony through the Holy Spirit. Or 1 John 3 and verse uh, 20. God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. So knowledge of men's hearts is a divine attribute of God. Of course, Jesus as God, he shared this ability. He had this power. John 2, 24, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus knew the hearts of all. God knows the hearts of all. Here, Paul tells us, the hearts, the desires, the motivations of these fellows. Peter does the same thing uh, in 2 Peter 2 when he describes the inward character and corrupt hearts of the false teacher. But this is not a power given us. We do not know men's hearts. We cannot for absolute certainty know men's hearts. And so we never know when somebody might be sincerely mistaken. We, we may see something that went wrong, but we don't know that they were desiring that. We don't know that uh, uh, that's what they were intending to do. Now, we do have a way to appraise uh, people, whether they're doing good or, or, or bad, whether they're on the path of right or on the path of wrong. We have this from Jesus, Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of the false teachers who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Well, how can you tell if he's a wolf in sheep's clothing? What if his sheep suit is especially well tailored? What if he can speak like a lamb? What if he can act like a lamb? He certainly dressed like a lamb. Well, Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. So Paul, the apostle, uh, by inspiration, could know them by their hearts. Jesus knowing every man as God does, Jesus and the Father, they know what's in the heart of every man. We don't know what's in their hearts. We have to go by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce good fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will 
know them by their fruits. So we can know about people. We can certainly know what they've done, and we can certainly know the fruits that are being born. Now, with that, we do have to be careful. We have to make sure we can judge good fruit from bad. Because sometimes people, anything disagrees with them, well, that's just bad fruit. Anything agrees with them, hey, that's good fruit. But we know that's not right. And Isaiah warned of those who uh, caused good evil and called evil good, who uh, transposed light for dark and dark for light. And so uh, we can fool ourselves and we can be fooled, but we're to look and know and judge by fruit. So this is what they're doing, Paul said. They desire, again, he knew that by inspiration, uh, we, we can't, but they desire to make a good showing in the flesh. Ah, so it's fleshly appeal. It's things of this world that they traffic in. They desire to make a good showing in the flesh They try to, as they try to compel you to be circumcised. So it was a fleshly concern. It was, uh, I think, the approval of their in-group. Uh, like uh, you think about the Pharisees, how they had this group think mentality, and how even though within the group they were trying to get ahead of one another. And so uh, with the group that they're trying to impress, uh, those, uh, those in the flesh and of the flesh, uh, getting people to be circumcised, uh, calling converts uh, back toward Judaism, uh, this was their glory. This is what they sought. This is what they congratulated themselves in doing. Simply, Paul says, that they may not be persecuted. So there was a Judaizing influence in the church. It was not done by Gentile folks. There may have been some of those carried away and convinced to do it. But the, the impetus behind this was Jewish teachers uh, who have brought their Judaism with them in the church and it appears that they are yielding to Jewish pressure. And of course, one thing about uh, these folks under this, uh, and this really was kind of unique in the church for uh, this generation, and it pretty, pretty, uh, pretty quickly peters out, because these folks had centuries of Judaism behind them, and they had all their families were Jews, and they had this kinship. That's one thing about being in a tribe, uh, being in an ethnic nation. Everybody's related. Everybody's got these uh, common uh, experiences. Everybody's had these common goals. And they, they move this uh, desire for the things of Judaism into the church. They don't want to be disowned. Or they don't want to be disdained. They don't want to be on the outs with their countrymen because their countrymen are their kinsmen. There's this ethnic part of this. There's a national part of this. There's a cultural part of this, and the desire to fit in to that group was part, Paul says, of what they were doing. So it was a desire to make a showing in the flesh, to get others to be circumcised, so that they would not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And so really, it's it's a pride uh, and or a pride with cowardice. And we know about the end of all the cowards and the unbelieving, Revelation 21.8. But there's this desire to avoid a persecution. And so they are, by putting Judaism and circumcision and the law with Christ, 
They're avoiding a hard thing. They're making it easier on themselves. They don't want to be persecuted. Why would they be persecuted? Because they stood by the cross of Christ, which of course is emblematic of the whole gospel. The word of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1.18, is to those who are perishing foolishness. Now, to those of us who are being saved, it's the very power of God. But the cross is, a, is foolishness. And it, Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.23, to the Jews it was a stumbling block. To the Gentiles it is foolishness. But to those of us who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so by having some Judaism here with it, having a Judaized gospel, they avoided persecution. Uh, they avoided getting on the outs with their people, uh, their nation, their ethnic group, literally probably their own relatives. But this cross of Christ and the cross alone, preaching just that, not a, a, a gospel that compromised distinguishing uh, distinctive elements, not a gospel that taught a whole lot of truth, but also had the objectionable parts removed, not a gospel that uh, was pretty good, except it yielded on points of controversy. Uh, that's not the gospel that saves, but this is a gospel these are teaching. And so when the gospel includes what those around find offensive, then the, there's persecution. But if you take that part out of the gospel, or you add in the part that they like, as Paul said back in chapter 5, but if I, brethren, am still preaching circumcision, why am I persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. And so the cross was a stumbling block. It almost as though it was an intentional test. Do you go with what God and Jesus say? Or do you combine it with these other things? These guys were failing the gospel because they included that which was not in it, so it'd be more palatable. So they were avoiding persecution, but it turns out they're also avoiding the truth of Christ. And this gospel, in this day it was a gospel without this Jewish elements. This caused people who wanted the Jewish elements, it caused them uh, to be uh, to work against it, to go to persecute those who taught it. It compromised the gospel. And so we'll note even today an exclusive gospel that says we're with Jesus, only with Jesus, not with these things that are uh, demanded by the culture. Uh, these things still become uh, sticking points. So Christ with circumcision in this society, in this culture, this would have gone over well. And many people were being persuaded by it. Paul said, but that's not the gospel. I'm so quick, I'm amazed you're so quickly removed from the truth of the gospel. Today, it's not circumcision uh, that gets included and, and mixed in with the gospel to make it acceptable, uh, but it might be other things. But Christ and Christ alone ends up being you know, one of the things we can't compromise. These guys had Christ plus holdovers of, of the law. Uh, we have to have Christ and just Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Or uh, Acts 4 and verse 12. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven 
that has been given among men, by which we must be saved. And so a Christianity that includes uh, other things than the gospel, a Christianity that is not just Christ and Christ alone, was objectionable then, and it's objectionable now. Today there are some uh, moral practices that many, especially in uh, progressive Christianity, they have given themselves over to and said, oh, that's fine. You know, this, uh, uh, well, sexual morals, uh, a Christianity that includes uh, progressive uh, and tolerant sexual morals, uh, this gets applause from the world. But an exclusive gospel of, no, what Christ said and, and Christ alone, uh, that, gets, uh, that gets one out. Or if you want to get thrown out of the uh, you know, interdenominational and ecumenical movements, uh, all you have to do in some places is say, we'll pray and worship only in Jesus' name. And that'll get you right out. Um, the, the interfaith dialogue dies as soon as one guy says, we're with Christ and Christ alone. And people say, that's intolerant. Well, it may be to you, but that's also the gospel. So John 15, Jesus said, this I command you, that you love one another. So, so you be loving. But there's going to be hate out there. Don't let it be you. But if the world hates you, know it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. In this case, in, in the Galatian uh, uh, situation, the, the love of the world could be shown with uh, uh, mixing in circumcision and the law. In our society, it's other things that are mixed in. We don't really have anybody pushing for circumcision and the law. Uh, we have people pushing for other things. If, but if we were of the world and compromised with that, they'd love us. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Because they don't know the one who sent me. So there Jesus said, you'll really, you know, and when you stress what Jesus said here, that if you don't know him, you don't know God, right then uh, you'll be all, all men most hated. It really makes those outside enraged. So this exclusive loyalty, the exclusive fidelity to Christ alone by the revealed gospel alone in Paul's day and in ours on different topics, but the same principle that there will be opposition, but there'll be a reception by God through Christ, which is what we want. So these guys are desiring to avoid persecution, avoid some hard reality by compromising that which Christ taught them. And what we find is then, since the motivation is not to be right before God, to God alone be the glory, there is, there is always another motivation. And so these guys have a different motivation. One, to avoid that persecution based on the hard truth of Christ. The other, verse 13, is now a boasting that is misplaced, a boasting that is going to be fully in the wrong place. For those who are circumcised do not keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised 
so they may boast in your flesh. So they want to boast. They want to make converts. They want to count coup. They want to talk about their accomplishments. And their accomplishment is your flesh. Their your accomplishment is to get you to be circumcised. And so don't let a part of you be their trophy. Now, when we see it in that light, we see that this is, you know, a pretty hard thing and a pretty direct thing and, you know, kind of a, a um, you know, pull no punches approach that Paul's taking with this. They want to make a trophy out of a piece of you, you know, um, not, not fully a pound of flesh, but, you know, you don't have a pound to give with what they're taking. But like Paul had said back in the fifth chapter with the same kind of directness and earthiness about it, he says uh, in verse, um, uh, where was it? Uh, oh, uh, Galatians 5.12. I wish those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves. So if they want to take glory in cutting and circumcision, well, let them just, let them just go to cutting. And so these guys, we notice this, they are not keeping the law themselves. For all they said about the law, when they came bringing the law to the church, they weren't keeping the law. They were trying to keep circumcision. I'm sure they'd probably, after that, work in the Sabbath. They'd probably work in a few other things. But have we ever heard about any of these guys trying to work in the sacrifices? The three trips a year to Jerusalem. Have we ever heard about them uh, bringing in all those other Jewish distinctives of conduct? No. It was just a couple of uh, greatest hits of the law. And they weren't bringing in the full embodiment, the full teaching of the law. They weren't even trying. They just wanted to kind of Judaize to some degree, the church. They kept the parts they thought were important to them, and they left behind the rest. Now, whenever people make up their own religions, form their own churches, not based on the entirety of Scripture and the fullness of the revelation, what do they do? They keep the parts they like. And that's what these guys had done. They weren't really trying to convert people to be disciples of Moses. They weren't trying to get them to be proselytes through the Jewish religion. They knew that was a no-go. But they were trying to put in some parts. They desire to have you circumcised. Now, if we go to Colossians, again, there's a few other uh, holidays uh, and observances they were throwing in over there. But circumcision here seems to be the big thing. And why is it that? Well, because that really showed, are you committed to Christ and Christ alone in the gospel alone? Or are you committed to other things as well? In verse 11 of Galatians 5, we just read verse 12. But I wish those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves or the old King James cut themselves off. But it also says there, uh, just before that, Paul says, But if I, brethren, am preaching circumcision, why am I still persecuted? So I think sometimes they were saying, well, Paul was, you know, Paul really agrees with this. Paul said just be circumcised. I think is an argument they had been using to convince some. But Paul says, then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. So what it was that these Jewish folks objected to in Christ 
if you could get some law in there, particularly of circumcision, then they were happy. But Paul says, you're persecuting me. Why are you persecuting me? Because you know I'm actually against this. And so it seems that this doctrine gave in to Jewish prejudice at the expense of truth. And whenever we'll yield the teaching of the gospel uh, to local and current prejudice, like Paul said here, we're not being true uh, to the, uh, the facts and the truth of the gospel. And so we can't let the gospel preaching have an addition, uh, local prejudice, local custom, local practice, so that we can just get along better. We have to be true and fully faithful to Christ. Again, he says, these guys, and this is the, for all their talk of the law, they didn't follow it. This is the same um, critique he had given back in the book of Romans about these who bear the name Jew. They rely upon, he says, the law and they boast in God. That'd be good if they'd really done that. And you know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you're a guide to the blind. And this is where we can tell he's going into a bit of sarcasm here, and he's actually smacking them with this. And you're a light to those who are in darkness. You're a corrector to the foolish. You're a teacher of the immature. And you have in the law the embodiment of truth and knowledge. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You preach that the one that one should not steal. Do you steal? You say that one should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And obviously they do. And then he quoted the prophets to them. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it's written. So this is the problem when people try to get people to submit to part of God's law without following it themselves. I think of this passage today when I think of some people who are um, you know, culturally Christian. Uh, they try to get other people to follow Christian morality, which is a good thing in itself. It is. But they do it while not following uh, in re any real uh, spiritual way the law themselves. So these are the type of people, they don't go to church, but they still tell the homosexual that he's wrong out of Leviticus. Well, guy, there's nothing in Leviticus you actually follow, right? And so you're just making people mad at you and, and you're getting people to blaspheme God because you're teaching a, you know some external observance of the law, which again is a good thing in fact and in truth but it's coming from a person who just seems to show no willingness to follow it, only that they don't like what the other guy's doing, so they use it as you know, a weapon against him. These guys are using the law and circumcision as a, uh, a way to uh, go after these Christians who were leaving Judaism and the Gentiles that were coming with them to follow God, and they're using the law against them. But they really don't care for the law themselves. And so when people do that today, and you know they're cultural Christians, and they think it's really important that we uphold that heritage, but they're not churchgoers, they're not prayers, uh, they, they don't 
they wouldn't know a psalm if one, you know, was played on the radio in front of them. Uh, and they go around condemning other people for their immorality. Well, maybe there's some truth of what they say, but there's no power of example and there's no spirituality in what they do. And these guys with the shadow of the law troubling Christians enough to get some of them to think, well, maybe we should be circumcised and maybe we should do this. These guys are the same. So Paul tells us that their desires are base. Their desires are selfish. And we ought not give these fellows any room whatsoever. Now, in the rest of the handwritten recap of Galatians, Paul will move on to some more positive things, beginning in verse 14, as he then goes on to finish out the book. And Lord willing, next week, that'll be our study. So next week, our handwritten recap, uh, part two, the right boast and the right motivation. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Malvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.